All right, good morning. Welcome to Northwest Community Church. I want to say good morning to you. I am John Abel. I serve on the elder team here uh, at Northwest. Today we're going to be talking about Colossians, uh, specifically chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Kind of give you a little frame of reference of where I'm coming from with today's message. You know, my background is in um, basically software, writing computer programs and giving instructions to computers to tell them what to do. So I thought it was appropriate that today's section heading in the ESV is further instructions. This is Paul speaking to the church uh, at Colossians. You know, in my field, I've spent a considerable amount of time uh, writing instructions to tell computers um, what to do. And the purpose of those instructions is basically to solve a customer's problem, uh, to do something useful, and hopefully in the end, something that is usable after I leave, after I'm gone. You know, they have a software application that runs on their systems. Well, as you probably know, sometimes computers don't do the right things, and we can have what are called bugs in code. Uh, You know, computers can freeze up, and and something can go wrong. But I will submit to you that computers are a lot like humans, in that we were designed by God to follow instructions. But there's one stark contrast between humans and computers. God gave us the freedom to choose. We have the ability to make a choice. We know what the instructions say and are, but we don't have to follow them. And I guess the first kind of recorded example of this is in Genesis. You don't have to turn there. I have the scripture up front. But God gives clear instructions to Adam. And it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. Now, as many of you may recall the rest of the story, Adam and Eve disobey God. They doubt that he has their best interests at heart. They doubt that God's instructions are perfect. They eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And as this is known as the great fall of mankind or the original or primary sin that separates us from God our creator. So I want us to take a step back for a minute and fully comprehend the gravity of what's going on here. And I want you to kind of take a modern day example. Can you imagine if your computers had a choice as to whether or not they were going to respond to the commands that you gave them? If your smartphone, when you sent that text or updated your social media status, if your phone decided, not going to do it. Or let's say your GPS in your car when you're trying to navigate somewhere across country, if it just had a choice to decide whether or not it was going to get you to the right place or not. I hope you can see how chaotic that would be. But I think that's an important point to make. Because while our computers essentially do not have the ability to make that choice, we do. And I know you're thinking, okay, well, sometimes I tell my phone I want it to do something, it freezes up, or, you know, my computer gives me the blue screen of death and it crashes. I get it. I'm going to submit to you, though, computers do exactly as they're told. And we like to call those glitches or bugs in the code. When that happens, it's a computer doing exactly what it was told to do. It just so happens either ran out of memory or maybe somebody who was developing the code, you know, forgot to handle a case. Again, computers, they don't have a choice. Whereas we do. And I think that's an important distinction of God's creation. Okay? And, and so he could have made us exactly like computers where we have no choice to follow instructions, but he didn't. Why is that? Well, see, God desires a relationship with us. He doesn't want us just to walk around as robots doing everything he told us to do. He could have done that, but he chose not to. 
And I would say the closest corollary to our relationship with God is that of a parent and a child. If you've ever been a parent, or even if you've just worked with young children, you know that you can give a child a basic instruction. You can say, don't touch that hot stove. Okay, hot, no, right? Basic instruction. Well, the child receives that instruction, but then they have what's called a will. They have a choice. And they can choose to see you as a parent that loves them, that has their best interest at heart. Um, Or they can choose to do their own thing and think you don't know what's best. But I will tell you and submit to you that as a parent, uh, when a child obeys of their own free will, that is some of the most rewarding times as a parent. And I hope I get an amen from some parents in here on that one because it really truly is. So why am I spending so much time talking about instructions? Well, I want to ensure that as we review today's four verses, again, it's only four verses, uh, that we have a basic understanding together that, so we can look at them through the same or a similar lens. And so I've come up with a couple kind of heart alignment questions that I think we all need to ask ourselves before we get into Scripture. And so I have them up on the screen. You're welcome to write them down. But these are really some basic theological foundations when we approach Scripture. Do I trust that God's instructions are perfect? Does God really have my best interest in mind with his instructions to me? You see, I hope that as you reflect on those questions that you can all answer emphatically yes. But I know that we are all like Adam and Eve. And even if you can answer yes, there have been times in yours and my life where we doubted that God knows what's best for us. And and perhaps we've even disobeyed God's instructions to us because we thought we knew what was best. And perhaps you can't answer yes to that question. Right now in your journey, perhaps uh, you're not sure who God really is. You don't have a relationship with him. You haven't come to that point. And that's totally okay. In fact, I would encourage you, as you're studying here with us today, to maybe consider that the next step for you might be to meet with someone else here in this auditorium this morning, to go over what this really looks like. Ask tough questions. That's what we're here for, folks. We're here to encourage each other on this journey that we call the Christian walk, our faith journeys. And so I don't think, well, I think it's important before we go too much further to also make sure we're operating from the same definition of what is an instruction. Dictionary defines that as a direction or order, a code or sequence in a computer program that defines an operation and puts it into effect. It's also defined as a detailed information telling how something should be done, operated, or assembled. So I kind of took all that and I came up with some of my own words. Instructions guide a process. Why? So that the end result is complete, finished, and perfected. Now, I have behind me here, and if anyone's ever purchased furniture, you may have observed some instructions like what you see behind me, and um, you may know what a challenge it can be to follow these said instructions and end up with a result that looks like what's on uh, the picture of the box that you bought, right? Even with perfect instructions, if they're not followed correctly, it can yield a wrong outcome, which can cause damage, okay? And now as an engineer, I have to confess to you that I am not always the best at following instructions. I'm going to take you back to fifth grade. Uh, We had this timed test, which automatically I get nervous when I hear timed test because I think I have to cram something into a short period of time, and I don't really like to do that. 
But in this time test, and I don't know if you can read it, basically the first instruction is to read everything carefully before doing anything. And at the top it says you only have three minutes to complete this test. The second thing says put your name in the upper right-hand corner of this paper. The third says loudly call out your first name. Circle the word name in sentence two. Five, if you have followed directions carefully to this point, call it out, I have. Okay, so I'm freaking out. I stop reading instructions and I start doing them, okay? I've, I've totally, you know, lost track of where the time has gone and I'm worried about accomplishing everything that's on this page. After about a minute of this, I look around and a handful of people in my class are done. They're just sitting there and I'm going, okay, what did I miss? Well, if I had read the instructions, I would have noticed number 23. Now that you've finished reading everything carefully, do only sentences one and two. Wow. <laughs> so maybe I should have started in reverse order. You know, this may seem like a comical example, and, and you're like, why are you bringing this up? Well, honestly, folks, I really think that sometimes our Christian life can look a lot like this. We get so caught up in trying to do everything right as quickly as possible or we quickly get overwhelmed by the number of instructions and we end up spending time rushing through the test and fail to take a step back from the whole of Scripture. You know, the best example to me of this is the Pharisees of Jesus' day. You know, they were extremely busy on keeping the law perfectly, but they missed Jesus completely. You know, Jesus says of them in Matthew 15, verse 8, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, they were so busy keeping the law that prophesied about Jesus that they missed Jesus completely. At Northwest, we strongly believe that the Bible is God's instruction manual for us, for our day-to-day living, to be studied in the whole context. The Bible is filled with examples of how God desires to have a personal relationship with each and every one of us. God desires for us to become new creations in Christ, as we saw in Colossians 3, by putting off our earthly self and putting on our new self. Also, as we saw last week, God doesn't just desire obedience to his instructions, but he desires a right attitude. Ultimately, God wants our hearts to reflect inward obedience to him. My prayer for us is that may we never get so busy following all God's instructions that we miss having hearts that are obedient to him and that desire a relationship with him. May we never miss Christ. So with that in mind, I would ask for you to turn to Colossians 4. We're going to cover verses 2 through 6, and let's continue to dig deeper into Paul's further instructions to the church at Colossae. We're going to pick up in verse 2. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I, this is Paul, am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. One of the first things that I think we can do to help us with this text is to go back over it and circle, highlight all the instructional action statements. I've gone ahead and done that, and it should be up in front here for you, uh, some of the key instructional action statements in the text. 
And we're going to focus on these in the next few minutes. Words like continue steadfastly, being watchful with thanksgiving, pray for us, declare, make it clear, walk in wisdom, making the best use of your time. Let your speech be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. In fact, I would encourage you in your own study to go back over Colossians 3. There are a number of examples where Paul is saying to put off or to put on these various things. And I think it's sometimes helpful for us to just have those kind of summary statements, quick one or two words, action statements for us to follow. I'm going to take a quick step back. Now, you may have heard us earlier this year talk about our vision for Northwest as a leadership team. And we gave you three specific areas that we wanted to focus on and be laser-focused over the course of this coming year. And that was to pray, to grow, and to share. As I looked at these four verses today, I really felt like two of those key focus areas were prevalent. And so I'm going to kind of break it down for you into those two main areas. So from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4, I really feel like pray is the word or the key instruction that that I found uh, Paul was asking for. And for the second half, we're going to be talking about share. Okay, Um, So for that first section, let's go back over it and kind of dig in a little bit deeper, starting in verse 2. Paul says for us to continue steadfastly in prayer. So this infers that the Colossians were already praying. It also implies that there isn't necessarily an end to our prayers, that it's a continual thing that we're doing. Steadfast, he says, in prayer, that word means resolutely, dutifully firm, and unwavering. In verse 2, we see Paul say, be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. I thought of Philippians 4, 6. You don't have to turn there, but basically it says, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So this is how we're to pray. Verses 3 through 4, Paul gives the church at Colossae specific prayer requests to pray for them that is, Paul and his disciples, that God would open doors for them to declare the mystery of Christ and to make it clear. So here we can see, as is often the case with prayer requests, what's on Paul's heart. We can also see where he may have been in need of encouragement, and that's why he was asking for prayer from them. Paul's prayer request specifically targets prayer for open doors and that God would actually be the one doing the work, allowing them to clearly explain this mystery of Christ. Now, if you're like me, you may say, okay, well, what is the mystery of Christ? Well, that is like the million-dollar question, folks, right? If if anyone ever approaches you with that, I hope over the next few minutes after we go through this that you'll be able to actually give them that answer, right? Because Paul is explaining it. Paul explains this mystery in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And that's a great one to take down, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, in your own study so that you may, too, kind of better understand what this mystery is. But I'm going to summarize for you today. Verse 6 in Ephesians 3, it says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I came up with a little formula. It's pretty not, it doesn't balance. It's not an equation. But it basically says, The mystery of Christ is equal to the gospel. The gospel we refer to as the good news. That good news is that Christ's offer of salvation is free and it's for all all of us, both the Jew and the Gentile. And this was kind of revolutionary at that time because the Jews had kind of thought they were God's chosen people. So now the Gentiles are a part of the mix, and it's, it's, again, very transformative to some of those Jewish leaders at that day and age. 
Jumping back into our text, though, in verse 3, Paul acknowledges the reason and the purpose for why he's in prison and chains, so that he may declare Christ. He may declare this mystery. And Paul asks for prayer that he may make this mystery clear, which is how he ought to speak. So let's talk about us. How can we instruct someone on something that we don't yet know ourselves? That's pretty much impossible, right? I mean, we can fake it, but most of the time people will see right through us. They're going to know we're faking it. Do we really know the gospel? Do we really know the mystery of Christ, what the good news means for us personally? You see, if we don't, then I believe this is an area where we need to be intentional, seeking to grow in our own knowledge and ability to share this good story. We cannot outwardly teach what we don't yet inwardly believe. So there's going to be more on this in the next section, because I told you this is the topic of prayer, this instruction of prayer for the first two verses, and our next topic is going to be on sharing. So I have some personal questions I'm going to pull up here, that I would like for you to consider and perhaps write down as you think of the first two verses here in Colossians under this subtopic of praying. Really make this personal. Do you or do I pray like this? Like Paul is asking for us to pray. Do I pray for other believers in a steadfast and continual way? Do I pray for opportunities to share? Do I really think that God is in control? And do I pray for God to be the one to open those doors? Again, the key emphasis here is on God doing the work. And then do I pray, lastly, that I or we may make it clear as we're sharing. The next topic or the next section of these verses is verses 5 and 6. And I feel like sharing is really kind of the main instruction. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now we saw in Paul's prayer request from the first two verses that it was on his heart and he was in prison because he had the desire to share the mystery of Christ. Paul exhorts us, in in verse 5, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of our time. Okay, so he uses the word walk. So I feel like it's important for us to maybe spend a bit of time unpacking that word, because not something we traditionally would say, hey, walk in this way, right? Well, what does it really mean? So the Greek word is peripateo, which means to walk. It also has a secondary meaning of to make one's way progress, to make due use of opportunities. It's also Hebrew for to live, to regulate one's life, to conduct oneself, to pass one's life. So hear what Paul is saying when he uses the word walk. He's really talking about a way of living. That our lives may be purposefully regulated around wisdom toward outsiders. Okay, your next question, mine was, well, okay, outsiders, what is he talking about? There's another reference to the same term, outsiders, and that's from 1 Corinthians 5.12. When Paul is speaking of outsiders, he's talking about those who are outside the church. In other words, those who don't yet belong to the family of believers, that don't yet claim Christ as their Lord and Savior. One of my main takeaways from this verse is that Paul is encouraging all Christ followers to live in such a way where we are aware of those around us, those outside the church, and we're intentionally seizing opportunities to share our faith with them. And I think this is further illuminated by what Paul says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here we see we have speech that is gracious, seasoned with salt. Again, some word picture analogies are coming out here. 
Um, I was reminded of what we heard previously in this last me- part of our message series where it says, you know, you say you're a Christ follower, now act like it. You see, our words and our speech should be a reflection of our changed life, of Christ in us. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's Matthew 12, 34. In order for our speech to be full of grace, our hearts must first be filled with his grace. Our words should be easy to understand, as Paul says in verse 4. Our words should present a clear picture of the hope that we have within us. I thought of 1 Peter 3, 15. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Elsewhere, a similar emphasis placed on the content of our speech. We saw in Colossians 3, 8, it says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Again, no filthy language is what it's talking about there. Ephesians 4.29 says, no unwholesome talk. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. As we heard read from the stage earlier this morning in Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. So we have this kind of word picture here of our speech and salt. And so I thought it would be helpful to come up with an analogy. Okay, so this is your first kind of pop quiz today. So as blank is to blank, so our speech must be to others. I'm going to give you a hint. It has something to do with salt. Uh, It's specifically a favorite of mine. In the same way as Bojangles seasoning salt is to french fries, so our speech must be to others. Hopefully this is resonating with some of you in the audience here. Now I'm very much a visual person. And it's my hope that through this pictorial analogy that whenever you read verse 6 when it says that our speech is gracious seasoned with salt, you'll think to ask yourself, is my speech to others as good as Bojangles seasoning salt is to their french fries? That's a tall order, folks. Okay, also in verse 6, Paul says to answer each person. Well, that implies that people are asking us questions and that we're to be ready for what to say when they do. Similar to the question I asked in verse 4, how can we answer questions others ask of us that we have not yet reasoned with ourselves? Are we taking the time to dig deeper into Scripture and have answers prepared for those who ask us about the hope that's within us? Are we ready to share? To kind of summarize these couple of verses under sharing, I have, again, some personal questions. I would encourage you to write these down. And think on them. Am I making the most of my time? Am I making the most of my time to share Christ with others? Is my speech seasoned? Is my speech a reflection of Christ in me? Is my speech clear to others? And is my speech free from unwholesomeness? So we've talked about the two main themes in these four verses. And that is to pray, and to share. I think to summarize it, Paul is really asking for us to pray for opportunities to share. So they're very tied together. We've also discussed how God gives us instructions, just like a computer programmer gives a computer instructions. 
But there's one main difference. Unlike computers, we have been given a will that is free to choose whether or not we will follow those instructions. You see, we have a choice. God gives us instructions and he desires that we follow them for his glory and for our good. Now we have a choice. Will we pray that God would give us opportunities to share with others? Will we be willing to step out of our comfort zone and share with others? And lastly, will we trust that God's instructions are for our good and for his glory? I hope that we can say yes to each one of those questions. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, as we close this time reflecting on your word, I just want to thank you for the instructions that you've given us as your children. I want to thank you that you are so gracious with us even when we do not follow your instructions. God, we need your power through the Holy Spirit to invade our hearts that we may be transformed into new creations. God, I pray that uh, we would obey your instructions. May we pray continually for ourselves and for others. May we be bold to share and may your spirit guide our words that others would hear clearly your gospel, the good news that is for all. Lord God, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for your words from Paul which challenge us to grow deeper and to go deeper with those around us. As with all things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.